0: Welcome to the LSE everybody, um, welcome to this Forum for European Philosophy, European Provocation. I'm Simon Glendinning and I'm the Director of the Forum and I'm delighted to welcome here tonight Professor Nina Morgan who's flown in all the way from America to speak to us about Europe and its mythological, if not metaphorical, birthplace Greece, Athens. And it's lovely... Thing here, Athens in ruins, but still remaining, and I guess that's Europe today—Europe <laughs> and its crisis. Uh, Nina is uh, an associate. It wasn't pro- produced at home. Which, sorry, <laughs> that crisis was not. No, produced well, in Europe, uh, we we get them <laughs> recurrently. <laughs> I thought. <of> <laughs> Um, Nina is an Associate Professor of English and American Studies at Kennesaw State University in Georgia, and her title for tonight is Metaphor and Crisis, Somebody's, in Freud and Derrida. She'll speak for about an hour and then we'll have another 30 minutes or so for a question and answer, which I'll chair at that point, and we'll have orderly interruptions. <laughs> Thanks very much, Nina.
1: It's a real pleasure to visit the LSE and to have the opportunity to participate in the good work of the Forum for European Philosophy. I've been following Simon Glendenning's work and writing on Derrida for some time, and he's an immensely impressive scholar. So I'm um, just thrilled to be introduced by him. And I'm extremely grateful to him and to Julia Cardinale um, for the effort and the patience and the care they've demonstrated throughout this um, process of organizing my stay. And I'm also happy that each and every one of you is here tonight, and I hope that you will have enjoyed uh, the time that we're going to spend together. Let me start with a story. Well, I traveled to the Italian Dolomites for a conference. The conference was great. One of the last events on a Friday evening was a lecture by a French historian. And I'm sorry to say this, but he was boring it wasn't his fault. All I could do was look out the windows at the horizon and think, well, I'm going back home tomorrow, and I haven't seen anything here. Breaking my usual personal law of always being where I'm supposed to be, I snuck out the back of the lecture hall and disappeared into the city. After some time wandering, I decided that I should go into a building and find a bathroom, the sun was going down, and I thought it was the wise thing to do. As I entered one of the many massive granite buildings, a woman was leaving with a box of work, and I held the door open for her on her way out, and I asked her for directions to the bathroom. <clears throat> she said that most of the building was closed up, and I could go down that granite staircase, turn left, go into the room, and then I'd find a toilet. So, Persephone-like, I went down the staircase... And I was happy about that, because being super claustrophobic, I rarely take elevators, especially not alone. I found the room, and then inside that, another door that led to the water closet. I opened that huge heavy wooden door and entered a small granite vault with a rather unattractive toilet. I locked the door. At that moment I thought, why would I lock the door in this empty place? Am I crazy? Especially since as a claustrophobic person, I hate to be locked in anywhere. So I tried to turn the lock back and I broke it. And I did what everyone does when that one thing happens to them that they don't want to happen. I denied it. No, 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 this isn't happening. (coughs) This isn't real. It was not only a Friday night, but a Friday night before a four-day holiday weekend. If I were to be found alive, it wouldn't be until Wednesday, nearly six days later. And so I started to talk to myself and berate myself and to consult the gods. I said, is this not my nightmare? I lost track of time. I considered my destiny and asked no one, did I come to Italy to die? (laughs) Of course, I did all the things that you'd expect. I screamed for help. I banged on the door, but there was no use in that. I was in that crypt, and nobody was coming to help me. Now, for years, I'd been teaching Sophocles' famous play, Antigone, and I always had a great respect for her individualism, for the way she spoke out and stood up. In fact, I'd identified with this element, of the great hero of the ancient world, a woman whose symbolic value hasn't been lost since revisions of Antigone have been written the world over, many versions, written by Italians, in fact. And that's when it occurred to me that I had somehow, ironically, become Antigone. There I was, underground, in her tomb, and I was going to die there. My claustrophobia kicked in, my heart was pounding. In that instant, I conjured some of the too-many-to-name-or-know futures to come. How the hotel staff and the investigators would be going through my clothing. How my husband and son would soon be boarding a flight after being called by the consulate. I could hear the police questioning that poor young American man from the embassy that had dinner with me the night before. You could just hear him saying something like, No, no, it was just dinner. (laughs) I didn't even like her. (laughs) And the investigator saying, Oh, and what do you do with women that you don't like? (laughs) These specters rose and vanished in a fluctuating concurrency of contexts that I had inadvertently, though plausibly, put into motion including the interviews with other professors who had or hadn't seen me last. Nobody will have noticed when I slipped out as they, good scholars, were captivated by the French historian. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, I was the real captive. And I was held captive. I made a hostage of myself. And that's when I imagined how I would resolve the crisis before me. I did so because I refused to identify with, to become, Antigone. Many of you will know well the histories behind the words horizon, event, specter, highlighted on the screen behind me. The crypt of Abraham and Torok, the secret chamber, or the chamber of the secret within the unconscious, which Derrida discusses at length in his introduction to their psychoanalytic and poetic study of Freud's Wolfman or the instant, that present time which Derrida defines as witnessed by the photograph as being split, that split instance, snapshot, or still, which is the archive of the present moment as well as its trace. What takes the place of the irretrievable, the irreplaceable place? A quote. it is necessary, Derrida tells us, that the present in its structure be divisible, even while remaining unique, irreplaceable, and self-identical. The structure of the present must be divided so that even as the present is lost, the archive remains and refers to it as a non-reproducible referent and irreplaceable place. Quote. You may also recognize that the separation of one word from one, in this case, Sophoclean context, say Antigone, and its iterability, its repetition beyond its origins, for want of a better word, as well as its movement through time and space, to me, demonstrates how, as Derrida says, quote, thereby it can break with every given context and engender infinitely new contexts in an absolutely non-saturable fashion. The effect of this theory of iterability, one of Derrida's most important ideas, that writing and signification, as Simon Linden explains in his essay called On Language, as that which can and must break with its original context, author, and addressee, indicates that new contexts are infinitely created and absolutely non-saturable, both presently and in the futures to come. How difficult does that condition make our lives? If that's the case, Are we not spinning as though through infinite space, as Nietzsche said? Is it not getting colder? Is there no longer any up or down? Did Derrida unchain this earth from its sun? Little wonder then, in light of all the contexts we can imagine, in addition to the new ones that are engendered in the future to come, that we might feel a little overwhelmed, especially trapped in an increasingly crowded space, even claustrophobic? The work I want to discuss tonight is primarily Derrida's book, Athens Still Remains, which was originally published in large format, bilingual French and Greek version by Athens, uh, in, A- uh, in Athens by Olkos in 1996, and later, as Demure, Athene in 2009 by Galilee, translated by David Wells and anthologized in Counterpath, and finally as Athens Still Remains, in a translation by Naz in 2010. It's easy to read Athens Still Remains as autobiographical and intimate. It's arguably Derrida's most lyrical text. Here, Derrida's philosophy is sensual and emotional. It's tentative and questioning, and at times, heroic. Based on the premise of a short stay in Athens, Derrida here speaks to a collection of jean francois Bonhomme's black and white stills, taken in Greece many years earlier. Let me show some of them to you here on the screen. The first is an angular shot of a row of columns. The structures in these images here, the columns organized in a series, as well as the funerary tombstones and other shots, Repeat the motif of seriality as well as iterability and work as metaphors for, quote, interruption, separation, repetition, survival. This series, interruption, separation, repetition, survival, Derrida associates with mourning and the trace. Yet, there isn't any compensation in what would appear to be a kind of survival potential in the photograph, quote, Having to keep what it loses, namely the departed, does not every photograph act in effect through the bereaved experience, through the irresistible singularity of its referent, its here now, its date? It thus seems impossible, Peridot goes on to say. And that's the whole paradox, to stop this metonymic substitution. Reading this paragraph, it becomes clear why Derrida resisted for so long his own objectification in the form of the photograph's limiting frame. Not only did he resist his own objectification in the public space, not only the trope say, of the author posed before his books, but the substitution of the photograph for himself, an inevitable metonymic substitution, which I think leaves everyone feeling a bit awkward. The next image (coughs) is... And um, these are all random photographs, uh, supposedly. Um, this one of the ruins. Um, here's an old uh, street sign in Greek, also translated into English, saying Persephone. At a stand at the flea market, where various uh, abandoned objects are being sold, a family member's portrait, an old black telephone, a typewriter typewriter has an important place in the history of philosophy. And tellingly, some empty frames, square picture frames, oval, carved ones, begs the question of how a man's portrait ends up abandoned and for sale as an antique. Something in this reminds me of a quote from Freud's letter that I'll discuss with you later. The line is, what I see here is not real. And even though Freud is saying this when the real thing is before him, I'd like us to remember that this sentiment is also part of the look of looking at photography, and why, whenever someone takes a picture of me, it's not at all unusual for me to say, That's not me. That's not me. No. On one level of this text, photography serves simply, even playfully, as a metaphor for Derrida's thoughts. Quote, negatives, his thoughts are negatives waiting to be developed. Or his studies are, quote, enlargements. He compares himself to or decides to play the role of the inexperienced photographer that shoots into the light. He reminds us that photography means the writing of light. On another level, however, the photograph, as the, appa- as, the apparently, uh, as the apparent result of a happy marriage between what is natural light, the visual, and what is mechanical or technological writing, representation, is in this little book positioned problematically as analogous to the discourse of metaphysics itself, which also presents us with the name or a snapshot of what is supposedly there, what's real and true, of what we hold or behold to be obvious, universally present. Little wonder why Derrida's relation to the photograph is marked by a certain suspicion. Little wonder that in this light, the photograph now reads as a form of closure rather than exposure. Derrida's response to Bonhomme's photographs of Athens takes the form of a collection of his own aphoristic and serial reflections inspired by a granite sentence, a death sentence, which begins the entire narrative of his stay in Athens. It's the first line of the book. (coughs) Nous nous devons à l'amour. We owe ourselves to death. We should uh, remember that Socrates' last words were um, Asclepius, we owe owe a cock to Asclepius. Pay it, don't forget it. (coughs) Um, This is not a sentence that Derrida prefers. It's more like a sentence he prefers to defer, as you would no doubt also agree um, to respond to such a sentence with I I prefer not to. And yes, Bartleby was Derrida's favorite literary character. In a way, this book is about restructuring the debt we might be obliged to pay if surviving the end of such a sentence were impossible, about what kind of discourse or representation or structure might lead the way to our survivance. Later, I'll argue... That metaphor, as a structure, both ruptures in the manner of the untimely, or the contretemps, both ruptures the narrative, historical, teleological, and sustains a new, other condition. The language of the crisis, on the other hand, as apparently metaphorical as it might be with all of its cartographic roadmaps and holier-than-thou sacrificial cuts, does the opposite. I'm also going to argue that certain forms of literalness, tautological structures, it is what it is, for example, and what we might call false metaphor, as opposed to dead metaphor, do not do the work that the metaphor itself promises. Think of the proliferation of that word like in casual parlance, for example. What would have become of me if I said to myself, like, I'm totally locked in this bathroom. (laughs) You can see how such a use of the structure indicative of the simile, like, could be uh, reasonably deemed as totally useless. Let me just say that I feel totally comfortable mocking the ballet girl accent, because I was one, an original born and raised, and that's why I became an English professor, to, you know, make up for the fact that we unleashed like and basically on the world. (laughs) um, Gerritia deconstruction is not a philosophy of the good life, but it is a philosophy of survival or survivance. There aren't any programmatic recommendations for how to be more responsible or to be assured that one has been responsible, for example. But there is the understanding that when I'm responsible to one, it means I'm sacrificing responsibility to others. This structure of differentiation, of marking distinctions, making choices, is irreducible, a kind of constant complication. I'm always caught in this double bind. This is the space that I'm always making between at least two and amidst hundreds of others of unknown contexts and future times. And this reality appears to create for some a fair amount of anxiety, even a sense of powerlessness, especially inside the space of a delay of a decision. What does it mean to contextualize? How long does a context last? What is the time and space of the context? And more importantly, what intervention might I make in determining the borders of what may be infinite contexts? Is the metaphor a temporal intervention, or interruption, like the A in difference was a graphic intervention, shifting, moving, perhaps opening, rupturing even, if only in a symbolic manner, and yet we know how powerful symbols are, that space that I'm in, the place that I'm in. And as we move with metaphor, the for, the Greek and of metaphor meaning to carry to bear, what is happening in terms of time? Is there a delay in metaphors we transfer from one to the other, from the unknown to the known? This is a structure to which I'd like to return, but for the moment, let me leave a question hanging about the possibility of an internal reconstellation, a transformation inside the space of a delay, to ask whether and how we might work with what is here and now, through the other, with the other, even as a reflection of the other recognizing both that I'm in context and in relation to others and that the future of my relationship to these, as Derrida often reminds us, is incalculable and unpredictable. What might I need to understand about these as a way to live or as a way of life? Whether we are talking about our personal selves or our body politic, what is there to learn from deconstruction? For our purposes tonight, I'm approaching Athens Still Remains as a text that reads as a metaphor or a figure for Derrida's philosophy, but I also want to be attentive to our own personal experiences with metaphor and crisis, especially as they relate to context, and finally tonight, I hope to offer an explanation of the term concurrency, which comes out of my work with my writing partner, Mina Karavanta and which we first used in a collection comparing Jacques Derrida and Edward Said called Reconstellating Humanism. Concurrency is the term through which I'm reading what for me is the most interesting photograph in the book, the one of the karyatires, which you have on your copy. The two sisters, elegant, beautiful, larger than life statues, perhaps like Antigone and Ismone, apparently bound together in their destiny or fate. And At the end, I'm going to ask you to comment on that picture. Near the end of his very short book, this brief stay of vacation, like the stay of execution Socrates knows will delay his death sentence, altogether too brief, like our lives, Derrida remembers that Freud, too, had visited the Acropolis. This might not come as a surprise to you, but it was, in fact, a surprise to Freud. We know about the unexpected nature of his visit to the Acropolis because it became the subject matter of a now-famous letter written when Freud was 80 on the occasion of his friend Romain Rolland's 70th birthday, 70, the same age Socrates was when he decided to take the poison to kill himself and thus take the first step in philosophy's long death march. Freud's letter is entitled The Disturbance of Memory on the Acropolis." As the idea of memory is at the forefront of Derrida's work, it's clear why such a title would catch Derrida's eye. The letter mentions a number of interesting problems, derealization, the non arrive filial piety, the surprising event of coming to Athens, Napoleon, King Bob who killed the messenger, Freud's sense of the meaning of his own age, his old age, that is, that he will no longer do what he's left to do all his life, and that is to travel. The letter written in 1936 begins with a question. Freud wonders why the memory of his only trip to Athens in 2004 returns to him regularly and with some degree of discomfort, especially as his first reaction to the unplanned and fortuitous event according to Athens was that it seemed, quote, too good to be true, certainly not disturbing, seemingly not the stuff of a crisis. On such journeys upon the water, Freud writes, he recalls, in the form of a simile, that he felt like a hero. When one first catches sight of the sea, crosses the ocean, and experiences as realities cities and lands which for so long had been distant and attainable things of desire, one feels oneself like a hero who has performed deeds of improbable greatness. Certainly not the stuff of trauma. In this letter that Freud writes as an old man, he surmises that the reason that the experience troubles him and has troubled him is not that he was faced with a realization that the Acropolis really exists. Um, like all of us, you know, this first impression is pretty overwhelming. Uh, and those of you who have already visited the Acropolis, I'm sure have felt it um, almost all of you, it's that I'm, I'm here, it's real uh, you know, I'm real this kind of you know amazing, or, or this can't be real, I'm not here how did I get here, and you know, this very responsive you know, rush but I think um, every time I've gone to, the, you know, to Athens and every time I go, I go to the Acropolis um, you know, you all you hear people reacting that way all around you, and um, except for one British tourist, <clears throat> I followed her as she walked around, remember. and um, when she finished walking around, she looked at her boyfriend and she said, "It's not all that, is it?" <laughs> I'll tell you why. Why that's kind of stunning. It's not all that. Hmm. Okay. Ah, to return to Freud, okay. he says in the letter that the disturbance was due to another realization, that he had surpassed his own father in his experiences, obviously also in his travels, and more importantly, in his professional successes in life, in a kind of edible place-taking fantasy of repressed guilt. And so Freud then makes the reference... To what he recalls of a version of the story of Napoleon crowning himself and whispering to his brother, Freud was also traveling with his brother, this phrase if only our father, Montpère, could see us now, something like that um, so Freud concludes that he felt bad because of filial piety there's a lot to say about that letter but we don't really have time to discuss it thoroughly I'll be happy to answer questions about it Although there are theories with regard to other ways to read the disturbance on the Acropolis letter, for example, it's been argued that Freud calls up for Roland the the narrative regarding Napoleon, um, where Freud's image of himself as surpassing his father's, um, more Freud's image of himself as a Moses figure, for example. Since Freud's famous teacher, uh, Jean-Martin Charcot, was called... The Napoleon of neuroses. My unstudied guess is that this sense of crowning achievement was more related to Freud's reputation and to psychoanalysis having overcome Freud's old teacher's once highly regarded work in hypnosis. Thus, at the end of the life, uh, at the end of his life, Freud could now crown himself as the Napoleon of neurotics. In any case. What Derrida brings us here in this story of Freud's brief stay in Athens, the possible crisis of self and of reality that the face-to-face encounter with the Parthenon affords, the symbolism of himself as a Napoleon figure is really more the story to which Freud refers for Holland in the letter, the one about King Boabdil, who famously kills the messenger, who brings unwanted news, in this case, that his highness's favorite city, of Kama, has burned to the ground. Using the French word, Freud acknowledges in the king, the non-arrive, the refusal to recognize bad news or to let it arrive. For Derrida, perhaps, the repeated return of the repressed disturbance is not only indicative of Freud's narcissistic wound in light of endless professional battles and betrayals colored by growing pessimism in his old age that implicitly acknowledges that he or his psychoanalysis cannot totally conquer psychology in Napoleonic fashion and itself is always on the verge of ruins or that this news that he will not let arrive is compounded as he nears the end of his own life that as the end of the letter attests he has also perhaps like his father come to his limit where he can travel no more and go no further, build no more But more perhaps than avoidance or disturbance is that no message, no meaning fully arrives ever. That is the movement of what Derrida terms destinaris. The focus here is not on (coughs) no message, nor is it on no meaning, but instead on the reality that the fullness of meaning cannot finally arrive. Because concurrency, which I'll defined later, is always in process. The event is always on its way. The revenant comes down from on high or from below. A specter haunts from a future we cannot predict or calculate. While we do not let arrive the news that occasionally disturbs us, we could casually call this being in denial, it may also be valid to observe that what we see before us, in all its grandeur, may not feel real, that the Parthenon, or, why not, this Europe, the European parliamentary elections, institutions of the political through which we count and consider our existence, whose discourses may not have reached a certain credibility. I'm using this financial metaphor, as Derrida does, connecting credit to credence, may not have a certain credibility to be considered real. Is England really Europe? <laughs> Aren't there some people who really think that the crisis in Europe is just due to the Greeks not paying taxes? This puts that phrase, we owe ourselves to death, into a, another life, if you ask me, <clears throat> because that might be the condition of being Greek today. Let us not forget, however, what interest has accrued in our understanding of what the Parthenon stands for and means to us historically, religiously, ethnically, architecturally, aesthetically, politically. Because even though that British tourist was dead wrong, it is all that and more. The denial of credibility forecloses in advance what is coming tautological phrases at the service of this gesture might be familiar to you. There's no there there. Or, my favorite, it is what it is. Because what's coming is disturbing. And it's not the past. The city, King Boabdil's Alhama, uh, after all has already burned. And due to the crisis, Athens is already in ruins again. Especially the University of Athens, I have to say. But that which is yet to come, the next event, the future to come, that other that is every bit other, as Derrida says, is unknown and incalculable. And this is disturbing to the point of a non-arrive, to deniability of its credibility, because I have to take responsibility for it, for what comes next. And what's worse, I can't decide how to do that. I recently heard an LSE podcast in which Antoni Vives, and I hope I'm saying his name right, deputy mayor of Barcelona said, quote, our European malaise is fear of making decisions. If we were looking at Freud and Derrida sort of doing comparisons, we'd see in Freud pessimism and in Derrida affirmation. For Freud, it's the past trauma. For Derrida, it's the coming of the event. For Freud, the unconscious allows for contradiction. And for Derrida, writing allows for contradiction. That aporetic structure, the pharmakon, the drug, that's the cure, and the poison, iterability, and so forth. For Freud, transference occurs between patient and analyst. The metaphor itself is just a vehicle for transferring feelings and thoughts, even translating. In any case, a closed system of dream interpretation. X is Y. For Derrida, transformation occurs in time, because we are vulnerable to the future, dead or alive. Thus, for Derrida, the work of the metaphor is much more complex. It's not simply a mechanism, but a structure. And if a structure can also rupture, so much the better, from Derrida's point of view. The question in Derrida is, how does transformation happen? How do I decide what should be done, especially when there's a crisis at hand? Crisis may be a word that dominates our consciousness today. The Eurozone crisis, the financial crisis, the Fukushima crisis, the environmental crisis, the crisis in Iraq, or Afghanistan, Syria, Palestine, Washington, or Greece. But Derrida suggests that we should be suspicious of the word, the so-called idea, who calls it up, what it sets up, and what it presumes. In Economies of the Crisis, Derrida writes of the discourse of crisis as a backward-looking gesture that asks us for, quote, one more try, one more try to save the discourse of a world we no longer speak. We can read this statement as both a commentary on philosophy itself, um, as he says, the word crisis deserted philosophical vocabulary after Valerie and Husserl, and as a commentary on this world that the crisis sustains or perhaps even let's arise, suspends in the manner of that Heideggerian Aufhebung. For the crisis lets two ghosts haunt at the same time. The one that, as a phantasm, haunts us from the future, what we conjure through conjecture is to come, and the other one that reminds us of what is already dead. And they leave us, Hamlet like, in between asking what is or is not to be. Yet Derrida says that Hamlet shows courage face to face with the specter. And Heidegger, like Hamlet, as Derrida observes in The Beast and the Sovereign, demands that we look at metaphysics directly in the face, without detour. Only how to do so. How is philosophy to do so? And how are we? Is it just a matter of courage, simply having the strength to face our fears? I doubt it. As Derrida suggests, part of the challenge is that to act ethically or politically requires urgency. Any ethical or political question, he says, always asks, quote, what should I do? And this necessitates an answer. Yet no matter how much time is given for reflection and for one to arrive at decision, The essential contretemps, the time out of joint, is the experience of an interruption in that reflection and delay. To get from my knowledge to my decision, I have to pass through, perhaps travel through, undecidability, which Derrida says is, quote, the condition for, or the opening of a space for, an ethical or political decision, and not the opposite. That is, undecidability is not a form of stasis or a place of closure, and thus it is not to be avoided or rendered incoherent, a form of madness. What is the name of this interruption? What is the inter and why do we need it? This is a significant point when it comes to consideration of the structure of metaphor in Derrida's philosophy. According to Derrida, a decision is not based on knowledge. The decision is also an event, and the event is always exceptional, that is, without rules. The decision is also described as the other in me. I know, Derrida admits in a certain impossibility in saying the event, that quote, this proposition seems unacceptable according to traditional logic, that the decision should always be the other's decision. My decision is in fact the other's decision. This does not exempt or exonerate me from responsibility. My decision can never be mine. In a way, I'm passive in the decision-making, end quote. So, In this light, when we think of metaphor as what bears or what carries, perhaps we should think of metaphor as an intellectual structure that can carry me through undecidability to decision. While Derrida acknowledges that I am still responsible for my decision, it's for the other that I decide. Looking at the long long term, we can see how the other is concurrently impacted by our decisions now. Making decisions, of course, is contingent upon being able to make them. So much so um, that Derrida says, I believe that if there is such a thing as justice or responsibility, there must be decision. And yet, according to Derrida, it's not always, or perhaps it is never clear, when a decision truly takes place. Quote, A decision, if there is such a thing is never determinable in terms of knowledge one cannot determine a decision whenever someone says a decision was made and then and there i know this to be so and i also know what the decision was that person is mistaken a decision he says is an event that is not subsumable under a concept a theoretical judgment or a determination a determinate form of knowledge if it could ever be subsumed there would no longer be the need for a decision. A decision, if there is one, disappears in its appearance. In other words, uh, it doesn't look like itself. Perhaps it also says, that's not me. Because the decision is an event, and because this quote, the secret belongs to the structure of the event, and as this quote secret is not something private, clandestine, or hidden, but that the secret is as that which doesn't appear, we can see how, quote, nobody, uses the word nobody, can control the event or master the decision for the additional reason that its contexts are infinitely created, as it is subject to concurrency. We can imagine how it is tied to the non arrive but also to how Freud defines fright. Fright is what happens when we, quote, run into danger without being prepared for it. It emphasizes a a factor of surprise. Fright can be likened to the experience of meeting up face-to-face with the event. Even if the event is coming to a decision, often a surprisingly frightening moment, one that, as Vives observed, is currently feared, part of the European malaise. Quote, what one calls ethics or politics in our culture, Derrida claims, is the moment at which one cannot decide. There is a space in which decisionism does not take place, but, quote, being with the other does take place. We call it the ethical and the political. Personally, um, when I'm talking about politics and the political, um, I tend to talk to my students about politics as a binary structure, you know, one side against the other. Um, What we minimize when we say, you know, um, politics as usual. But the political, as demonstrated in Sophocles' Antigone, is the condition, a concurrent condition, of multiple valid points of view held at once with unequal force. If I, for example, give up explaining a complex situation, I might say it's political as shorthand for there are too many positions and perspectives to account for, many of which do not appear in an apparent fashion. Since being with others, in what Derrida calls the here and now, the hybrid economy of ethics and politics, means I have to decide upon something inescapably, as, quote, there can be ethics and politics only where a decision or an action is inescapable. What type of intervention, Derrida asks, could a philosopher have in the ethical and political debates as they are elaborated today, under conditions that are both very old and very modern. Well, first off, let's say that one thing that has to be done is you have to, as Derrida says, quote, negotiate the non negotiable. This is an example of Derrida's aporetic and paradoxical thinking, which, once you think about it, makes complete sense. Another example, as pretty well known, is of forgiveness. You can't forgive unless you are forgiving the unforgivable. And you can't really say, I forgive, or worse, I'll forgive you if you give me something. Um, it's like the gift. You can't give a gift and say, I'm giving you a gift. Otherwise, it's not a gift. It's like a bribe. Nietzsche also hated that you know, gesture of gift-giving in that way. But we can return to this later. My point of view, actually, is you can only fulfill Derrida's description of gift-giving and of unconditional Hospitality, if you're dead. But when you're dead, you can do these things very, very well. And that's partially why and how you might survive your own death. We can consider that later. Does metaphor help us in our encounter with the undecidable? Derrida says there's an urgency. But what, in fact, helps us make the leap? I'd like to suggest that faced with the ethical or political question of what I should do, or even how I should understand position or see myself now, as perhaps Freud did, Parthenon, or Derrida does when he begins to think of Socrates in Greece, that we might look to metaphor rather than what seems to be before us literally. The particularity of the metaphorical structure that intervenes in or ruptures the teleological end which, is, which the crisis pursues, the end of the crisis as a desired by all condition, that is a kind of return to an originary destiny, place if you will, discourse if you must, and in any case, the line, road, path, way that normalizes and puts back on track the time frame, tightens the timetable that deconstruction loosens, and thus the spatialization and temporalization of this conserving gesture that saves us from the cliff, the fiscal cliff, as we like to say in the United States, and so on. The concept of the crisis is non-metaphorical and generates a non-metaphorical stasis, a directionlessness that both demands progress along certain lines performed, say, as austerity measures, and marks, an, as impossible, a certain gathering with as much force as it separates and sunders, as the definition of crisis suggests, separates and decides. But this aporia that is both consensus-seeking in the form of decision as well as sacrificing and thus characterized by a seemingly endless series of cuts, is not located in the here and now. Instead, it offers a kind of messianism, only this is the messianism that Derrida did not greet as that which generates, if it ever were possible, a redemption. Thus caught between a past and a future end, the untimely, An unmoving discourse and reality of the crisis cannot produce an appropriate response to itself. If this is the case, that the language of crisis is used to call up as much control as possible, as Derrida says, quote... Uh, a world ruled by the values of judgment, decision, techno-scientific lucidity, knowledge, and know-how, mastery of subject over present objects, productivism, then I wouldn't be surprised if the crisis said, that's not me, that's not real, this solution isn't happening. If the discourse of the crisis has the effect of conjuring up not only the resources, Derrida says, science, conscience, and will of the West, of Europe, but also of Europe itself, then I wouldn't be surprised to learn that what is Europe suddenly becomes a question. Again, such a consolation, I'm sorry, such a consolidation into one may bring about the response That's not me. So Derrida says that such a calling up of Europe in the language of the crisis is a gathering of self, quote-unquote, a gathering of self that perhaps has never taken place. Functioning often at the level of literality, materiality, quantities, resources, the discourses of solutions to the crisis are meant to restore ethics and to make politics work. But as we've just seen from the perspective of deconstruction, this cannot be done without decision being associated with the incalculable event, without the one being with <coughs> others, without the work of an internal reconciliation as we remain <coughs> undecidable with respect to the urgent call for transformation. A link by association, what we call autonomy, relies on a relationship, not a redundancy or a repetition of the same, not a backward look to the past in photographic form, but a transformation with and through the other. Concurrency, as a term, acknowledges not simply the coexistence of different places, events, identities in the world, but rather the co-occurrence of their mobilities and developments, even their disappearances, in addition to their already existing but still unacknowledged or unarticulated or unpredicted connections. As a concept, concurrency shifts the paradigm of analysis from binaries, local-global, dominant-minor, center-margin, to the reciprocities that these binaries and the politics that have enforced them paradoxically create. Beyond this, concurrency acknowledges that the dynamics at play, whether we're talking about power, race, sexuality, language, capital events, are always unequalizable presences in their co-occurrence, not only to one another and other others, but also in the face of what is to come, as well as in light of the spectral past. Inside the word concurrency, one should hear echoes of the meanings of con related to coming to know, together, with, and against, as well as hear the metaphors in currency as related to currents and circulations, to flows, to money, systems of exchange, certainly unpredictable in nature, and to presences. Particular to the idea of concurrency is the recognition that what is happening at the same time occurs in unequalizable measure both to whatever else is currently manifest, or present and also to what has yet to be realized unequalizable manifest presences identities ethnicities histories land issues racisms forgotten treaties technologies mythologies capital texts climate art toxins kinship maps might be calculable but are all they are always attended and transformed by What is as yet unarticulated? As concurrency is always at work, the context of our analyses and our lives is always shifting. To ignore concurrency is to hold to essentialisms, universalisms, and the totalizing effects of binaries. The schema of the tautological is a form of reduction. Concurrency is obviously its other. Inside the tautological redundancy, the space is minimized. It's a bit claustrophobic in there. To give the impression of an obvious and immediate presence, the presence of an undeniable, demonstrated through its immediate repetition, of its validity and truth, plain to see, right before your eyes, it is what it is, no difference, no difference, no space for differentiation, hardly any sense of deferral as we move through the tautology only to confirm the origin. Tautology is also the other of metaphor. What do we do when our lives are in ruins? Living as we do in the cities on grounds where so many have lived before us, our steps are always a repetition of someone else's way, someone who has given way, yielded, who has passed. The world is a cemetery, and wherever we travel, we'll always visit the past. It's a kind of time travel that reminds us that our present is like a gift that arrived by transferral in transit via translation. It's our inheritance, which is always already someone else's property in someone else's name. This paper has been marked by my repeated attempts to begin at the beginning, or to start before I actually began, as I did with my story, or to get to the end of the book without coming to the end of my statements. Together we've moved back and forth, all the while moving in time, for this has taken us nearly an hour. We've spent most of it in an undecidable space, somewhere between trauma and metaphor and repetition with Freud, crisis and concurrency and iteration with Derrida, between two Jewish, non-Jewish thinkers visiting the center of Europe, which is no longer the center, as the center cannot hold the name, um, the origin named by supplementarity, not only by austerity. The discourse of the crisis is like the trip to the ruins. There's a past there. It suggests our destruction and eventual demise. It haunts us, our future, from the past. Like the language of the crisis that pretends to require a road any wandering off course will be catastrophic. Only sheer willpower, a mustering of resources, a guarantee of what works. Hence the scholars who, wrongly in my opinion, suggest that Europe should now model itself on the United States, its constitution and forms of representation. That is only, as Derrida says, what hasn't happened. I can tell you, <clears throat> as an American insider, that our political system is just as troubled, probably more so than yours. Um, again, secret here is defined not as what is hidden, but what doesn't appear. It just doesn't look that way to some European scholars from this side. But we are more and more in the middle, between, interrelated, yes, moving back and forth from known to unknown, never fully in the future, never completely of the past, undecidable and urgently in need of marking distinctions between what is all that and what isn't. The metaphorical structure includes a sense of time and space where concurrency and undecidability move, tremble, to use Derrida's Kierkegaardian reference, with us. This is the nature of the present, that in between. Yet, like Derrida's favored words, pharmakon, supplement, differance, that escape philosophical mastery while at the same time, while concurrently retaining a very singular relation to writing inside their contradictions, we might escape Take a little vacation, perhaps. We might deny the death sentence and the debt collectors. We might, as Derrida says triumphantly and heroically at the end, well, no. We refuse this debt. This is a quote, actually. Not only do we not recognize it, but we refuse the authority of this anteriority, this a priori, or this supposed originary of obligation, of schuldigsein, this religion of mourning, this culture of loss and lack and so on, end quote. In this rebellious moment, Derrida remarks that the double structure of the new new offers one we that is complicit, nous devons, and the other, the first, which is innocent, quote, it knows nothing of death. Thus Derrida suggests traveling to Athens in another way, without regard for the finitude of the sun. Quote, for what regards the sun and all that it stands for and all that it produces, such as photography, for, quote, every photograph is of the sun, such as the crisis of self, of economos, of everything under the sun which he at this moment disregards, recognizing himself as another kind of sun, perhaps that faithfully unfaithful sun of philosophy, Derrida, who says that he has always refused to put to death, insists in the last words of this book that he, or the son, is not yet dead. In another context, Derrida observes, I've always forbidden myself to put to death, even at this moment when this very heritage, in order to save its life, demands reinterpretation, critique, and displacement so that a transformation might take place, so that something might happen, an event, some history, an unforeseeable future to come. Just as Derrida says no to the history of philosophy as a lesson in how to die, just as he refuses to become, to identify with Socrates, he uses metaphor to intervene and rupture a narrative of origins, which he defies to save himself and to save its life in the name of survival. Derrida's remains are not photographable, his trace is still moving or traveling in iterability from context to context, concurrently, here with us now, in language where he has always been divided. As for us, the present may be an irretrievable place, but it's where we live. For some, it's where we're trapped. If you don't get out alive, and you won't, just picture picture them, the others, deciding what to do for you, ethically and politically, negotiating your survival. After all, it is what it is, especially when it isn't. Thank you.